Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series in the book of Ephesians. We've called this series One because that that idea of all things being brought together as one really sums up the good news as we find it in Ephesians. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. We saw last week how that means, among other things, that Jesus is bringing together a diverse family to call his own, a family made up of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, white and black, all kinds of people coming together in one family. And so this morning, our series continues as we come to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 13. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by, revel- by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory." This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, there is a section on nearly every application you have ever filled out, whether it be an application for a job, an application for a loan, an application for a lease. It's a part of that application that if it doesn't apply to you, you've probably never given a second thought to. But if it does apply to you, it's probably the only thing you think about when you're filling out an application. And it's the part of the application where it comes time to check the box on whether or not you've ever been convicted of a felony. Right? Some of you know this anxiety that can creep up every time you fill out an application for a job, every time you try to rent an apartment, that you know no matter what else is on your resume, you're going to have to explain that checked box before people will even get to know you, before they'll ask the questions about the rest of your life, about the rest of your skills, about the rest of the things you bring to the job. Imagine, for those of you who've never had to feel that anxiety over that box, imagine if the, mo- the thing about your life that you are most ashamed of, the chapter of it that you regret the most, you were, you were forced to put out as your lead foot, 
If every job interview you had to begin with your most embarrassing moments, your deepest failures, we can get to know something of the feeling of what it might be like to have to do that. And that's that feeling, that, that, that the necessity of having to explain your conviction is exactly what's going on in this section of Ephesians. Paul writes to the Ephesian church from a Roman prison. He's writing as a convict. And he's writing to them, these churches in and around Ephesus. Some of the members he may have known, they may know his story, they may know why he's arrested. But for others of them, he would be introducing himself for the first time. And so you can see Paul in this section trying to explain his imprisonment, trying to explain why he is in chains, how he came to be there, and why. In light of that, they should listen to anything else that he has to say. And of course, Paul has to do this because of another issue. Think about the things that he has said already in Ephesians. That through his death and resurrection, Jesus is triumphing over all of the powers and authorities, all of the evil forces of the earth that he's victorious over the powers of sin and death, and that he's building together for himself a new people. Imagine, so he's got this theology of the victory of Jesus over all of the forces of evil and all of our shame and all of our defeat, and yet he's writing from a Roman prison. He's having to explain and trying to square how can these two things be true? How can Jesus have won and me be in prison? How can Christ be our healing and us still be sick? How can Jesus be our forgiveness and our sanctification and us still struggle with sin? What Paul's getting at here is something that we all need, which is to understand how to make sense of it when our biography and our theology don't seem to line up. When the story of our lives and the story of our faith don't seem to gel with each other, how do we make sense of our lives as marked as they are by discouragement, by defeat, by guilt, by shame, by sin, by failure, by weakness? How do we make sense of that in the light of the good news of Jesus? You know, I want you to look at something. This is a really, really uh, interesting section in Ephesians. Look at verse 1. Paul starts a sentence. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he goes off on a tangent for about 12 verses. Then look at the very next verse, the one we didn't, didn't read, verse 14. He picks back up and says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What's happening here is that Paul starts a prayer. For this reason, in light of all the stuff I've told you, for this reason, I, Paul, and he starts a prayer. But then he gets distracted, it seems, and goes off on a jag where he's explaining his biography and some incredibly rich theology, some incredibly rich kind of one-liners about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then in verse 14, almost like he's going, oh yeah, where was I? Oh yeah, that's right, I was about to pray. Let me, okay, for this reason, I, Paul, and he picks back up again. And so for that reason, some, some commentators don't really know what to make of these, these 13 verses. 
this little aside where it seems like Paul's ADD takes over and he kind of just goes off, talks about some stuff, and then comes back. And so they can think of it as kind of tangential to his argument in Ephesians. But if what we've said is true, if Paul's trying to make light of his biography and light of his theology, then this part is actually, and I think we're going to see, is crucial to the argument of Ephesians. It's crucial to what Paul's doing here. Because what he's doing is he's lifting up the story of his own life, his own weakness, his own arrest, his own struggle, as a, as a template, as a way for the Ephesian church to come to understand their own lives, their own life as a church, their own life in the world, and how it overlaps with the gospel. You see, Paul uh, makes sense of his life, he makes sense of his suffering by showing it in the context of the story that God has been telling from Genesis all the way through the pages of Scripture. He talks about it in terms of a mystery. He says that a mystery has been made known to him that's been hidden for ages past. That he's come to see this mystery. Now, when we, when we read mystery, we're prone to think of it as, well, like a, a modern mystery, as a, as a question that we have to answer, as kind of the plot of a, a CSI show or a murder she wrote or something like that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a problem to be solved. That's not the way that the Greeks thought of mystery. It's not the way that the ancients thought of mystery. They thought of mystery as something that's been hidden that's now revealed. It's the aha moment, maybe at the end of a mystery, right? It's the, it's the one thing that once you see it, it makes sense of all the other things. It's like one of those, if you remember, I think it was, they were really popular in the 90s and early 2000s. There was those hidden, those magic eye paintings they were computer generated and you just look at it. It's just kind of a jumbled, you know, kind of mess of pictures. And if you stare at it long enough, then all of a sudden this image pops out. And all your friends, you know, one of your friends would get one of these things and put it on their wall. They go, no, you have to stare at it. You have to look at the center. No, no, then you have to unfocus and not look at anything. No, no, you're doing it wrong. And then finally you get frustrated and you, you, you finally see it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Once the image pops out, you realize it's been there all along. It's what's given order and made sense of these, this, this foggy image the whole time. It makes sense of everything else. And Paul says that there is a key that makes sense of everything else. It makes sense of the story of, of, uh, of God's dealings with Israel. It makes sense of their history. It makes sense of his own life, and it has the power to make sense of the church's life. And the mystery is this. The mystery that makes sense of all of it is that God, is using weakness, failure, and even death to save the world. That it's always been his way to use human weakness, human frailty, human, uh, even death, to save the world, to redeem all things. Paul finds his meaning in this long story of Israel. God's dealing with his own people. Right? We learn in Deuteronomy that God didn't choose Israel because they were more powerful, because they were more wealthy or more numerous. No, he chose the people of Israel, Abraham's family, precisely because they were few, because they were weak. That through choosing a small, weak nation on earth, that he would be shown to be powerful and to be glorious. Right, the story continues. God, there's this great story 
when God's people are enslaved in Egypt under the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, that he takes a baby, the baby Moses, and in a basket, right, is discovered and grows up right under the nose of Pharaoh to redeem and to rescue God's people at the expense of Pharaoh. There's this strange story in the book of Judges where Gideon, who is a judge, who is a leader of Israel, is about to take the Israelites in to do battle with the Midianites. And he's got an army that's already outnumbered. He's got a, a, an army of about 32,000 people going in to do battle with an army that he says is, is, is uh, unable to be counted, as numerous, as many men and animals as there are sand on the seashore. He's going into that battle, and God says, oh, no, you got too many people. Your army's too big. So get rid of, get rid of some of them. And he cuts it down to 10,000 at first, and then ultimately down to 300. And his reason is, his reason is, reduce it down to 300, lest Israel should boast that their victory came from their own hand. Right, So that Israel doesn't defeat the Midianites and go, yeah, I knew we could do it. I knew that our generals were smart enough and our soldiers were brave enough and we were strong enough. He says, no, I want to take you in with an army of 300 so that I can receive the glory. So that you'll know that it was a supernatural victory. Then there's the famous story of David and Goliath. right, Where the narrator sets up this story where one of the strongest and bravest and baddest men in the world Goliath is calling out for one of the men of Israel to come out and do battle with him. Over and over the story, it shows that they're looking for a man. They're looking for a strong man, a big man. And yet David is shown to be the littlest and the weakest, the youngest, the smallest. He's the one who comes out to do battle with Goliath so that God would receive the glory, so that God would be seen to be the one who gave his people victory so that God would be glorified, not the people. Right, it's evident as the, as the story goes on from Israel to Moses to Gideon to David that God loves when he has his choice, and God always has his choice. When he has his choice, he prefers to triumph through weakness. He prefers to triumph through smallness so that he gets the worship and the glory for the victory. Right, it's that story that clearly is pointing forward to Jesus, right? The ultimate story of God being victorious over the powers through weakness, through Jesus who comes as a king riding on a donkey, who comes as a king, but who gets arrested by Caesar, who comes as a king, as a Messiah, a promised redeemer and rescuer, and yet ends up crucified as a common criminal. That Jesus is the highest expression of God triumphing through weakness, frailty, and death to build his kingdom, to build his kingdom. And that's the story that Paul finds his own life story in, right? Just as all of those Old Testament figures, just as their lives looked forward to Jesus, looked forward to that story and pointed towards him, so Paul would say that his life looks backwards to Jesus. The pattern of his life points to the triumph of Jesus in the cross. And so too uh, does the life of the church, that the church's struggle, that our own battles with sin, our own battles with shame and frailty, don't point to ourselves, they point to Jesus, that it's another chapter 
in the ongoing story of, G- of God using the weak things of the world, the humble things of the world, to show his glory and to be proven to be glorious to the world. That that is what God is doing uh, in the world. You know, earlier in, in last week's chapter, we looked at how Paul says that, the, that Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He's the cornerstone of the new temple. Right? What does a cornerstone do? In a building, a cornerstone sets the shape and the trajectory of the whole rest of the building. Right? If you get the cornerstone wrong, you get the foundation wrong, and then the whole building's off kilter. But with Christ as the cornerstone, that means that Christ sets the shape of the whole building. And what shape should we expect a building built on Jesus to take? The shape of the cross. It's a, it's a cruciform building. It's a building that looks like the weakness and suffering and death of Jesus and that points to the glory of God in the midst of that. We glorify God in our weakness, in those parts of our lives that we struggle and are most ashamed of. You know, this was, this was illustrated for me uh, incredibly clearly uh, through a friendship I had with a man in Orlando when we lived down there. He was a deacon in the first church uh, that I served in as a pastor. His name was Scott. Uh, Scott was a, uh, a man who was fairly successful in his work. He had three children who, when I knew him, were uh, the youngest was in college, the oldest were grown and out of the house. Um, and Scott was a man that, in spite of his success, in spite of his relative prosperity, really and truly gave his life on the behalf of the poor. He gave his life away to the most vulnerable parts of the city of Orlando. He built friendships uh, in every little uh, impoverished neighborhood in Orlando. He was known. People knew who he was. He's an incredible example uh, of what it means to spend our lives on behalf of the least of these. And then uh, in his early 40s, uh, Scott was diagnosed with cancer. He had a long, long battle with cancer, six or seven years of in and out of chemo and radiation and transplants and in everything that you can imagine Scott went through in this battle with cancer. This was, a, this was one of the most godly men I knew. And here he was suffering. The church that we were a part of, we gathered around him regularly and prayed for him regularly. Really, the, because of the way that he lived his life, he had friends all over the city that would gather from from predominantly white churches and predominantly black churches, rich churches, poor churches, all would come together for no other purpose than to pray for Scott. And I remember being in these meetings, and I remember hearing a prayer that would be prayed over and over again, which was, God, please heal Scott in such a miraculous way that it confounds the doctors, that the doctors are left and the the nurses and the caregivers are left going, you know what, if he healed Scott from his cancer, from this kind of cancer, surely God must be real. So heal Scott so that you might be glorified. But you know what, I never heard Scott pray that prayer. Over and over, you know what I heard Scott pray? God, whether you heal me or whether I die, may my caregivers and those around me come to know your goodness. May I live or die in such a way that it's a faithful witness to your grace. Whether I live or die, may your good news go out. May you be glorified. And you know what? Scott did die. And at his funeral, which was as close to a snapshot of heaven, uh, because of just the, the incredibly diverse makeup of the people that Scott loved, 
His caregivers were there. Nurses were there. Doctors were there. People who had seen not his healing, but his weakness. The way that he suffered and died in faith, clinging to the God that, that had rescued him and redeemed him, clinging to the one who he clinged to in good times, also clinging to in death. And you know, we all want some version of the story that goes, God, heal me so that the world will know your, your glory. Right? We all want the story where our lives are so glorious, so successful, so healthy, that the world around us looks and goes, man, God must be real. Right? We all want to have the life where we're so successful in our career and we do our work with such integrity that all our coworkers look around and go, well, you know what? If Bob did it that way and Bob got ahead, then maybe I want to believe what he believes because I want his career. Right? We all want to have the family that's so, so beautiful and so well-ordered and so happy that our neighbors look at it and go, man, if that's their family and they got that family through Jesus, well, maybe I want to believe too. Or if they're so healthy and successful, then maybe I can believe and have some of their health and success. But what we find in history and what we find in our culture is that the world, the world has very little interest in, your, in the witness of your awesomeness to Jesus. Of looking at your life and going, man, that's so incredible. Of looking at the guy that won the Super Bowl and go, hey, maybe I can win. He thanked Jesus after he won the Super Bowl. Maybe if I thank Jesus, I'll win. Right? We all want witness through winning. But God seems to choose witness through losing. He seems to most often choose to be made glorified, to be made beautiful, to be seen in our weakness, to be seen in our suffering, to be seen at those moments where we're not great, but where we're frail. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Paul says, he calls himself in verse 1, that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That this shameful imprisonment, the fact that he's writing this letter in chains, is all for Christ Jesus. He says in verse 7, though that I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Though I'm the least, though I'm the weakest, this grace was given that I would testify to the beauty of the gospel. And that would be, through, that would be what God has made known through. And that should encourage the Ephesian church this local suffering group of, church, uh, group of churches in Ephesus that lived their life as a minority culture in the ancient world, a church that would have known poverty, that would have known persecution, that would have known weakness, it helps them to set their imagination on how God might be glorified through their weakness. You know, I don't know all of the stories within the Ephesian church, right? We don't know, we know a lot about the Ephesian church. We saw that was one of the churches we looked at in our Revelation sermon series. But I know, I know stories of the church. I know stories of this church. Right? I know. I don't know all of you uh, in depth, but I know, I know a lot of you really well. I've seen the disappointments that you've endured in your life. Right? I've seen uh, what you thought your lives would look like in light of what they do look like. I've seen the disappointments that some of you have had to endure in your careers, wondering how you're going to get ahead and make enough 
Maybe for some of you, it's for your livelihood, to get a job and to provide for yourself. Maybe for some of it's to establish your, your children. But I've seen those struggles. I've seen those disappointments in your life. I've seen the disappointments that you've gone through around family. Right? Some of you, uh, what you wanted your marriage to be and to look like. And yet some of you still deal with singleness and desire to be married. Some of you are married and at times wish you were single because of the difficulty that it's meant for your life. I've seen the children uh, that some of you have longed to have and been unable to. I've seen the way that you had hoped uh, things to work out for your adult kids and have struggled to parent through that. And I have to say, that just as Paul looked at the suffering of, of this church in Ephesus and said, in that is your glory, I, as your pastor, can look at those disappointments and the ways that you've clung to Jesus in the midst of it, in the way that as those old dreams are disappointed and fall away, how they're replaced with new dreams, dreams of clinging to Jesus and finding your life in him and being, allowing him to be glorified in your life, whether through plenty or in want, whether through a happy marriage or through a difficult marriage, I've seen it, and it is glorious. It's beautiful. That God is made beautiful and glorious when we cling to him as other things are taken away, as other things don't go as planned, as other dreams are disappointed. He becomes more and more the centerpiece of our hearts, the centerpiece of our lives, and a witness and a testimony to our neighbors. If you want to know how the suffering of your life can go from being just kind of seemingly meaningless suffering, seemingly random pain inflicted upon us. It comes from finding the meaning of your story in this larger overarching narrative of God's story. Finding the story of your biography swallowed up in the story of Jesus. For Paul, uh, it means finding his story in the middle of this mystery. It means finding the purpose of your life in the glory of God. You know, Paul says here uh, in verse 7 and 8, that though he's the least of the saints, though he's the least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. You know, the, the purpose of pain the purpose of our suffering, even the purpose of our success, the purpose of our answered prayers, the purpose of all of it is that we would experience and reveal the grace of God. Paul sees in his suffering this plan that he would experience God's grace, that he would experience the goodness and the mercy and the nearness of God in his suffering in a way that he never could outside of prison, and that he would come to make it known to the Gentiles through his suffering that he suffered for others. And you know, we can be, when we, when we start talking about the purpose of suffering, it can be, we can get lost in philosophical speculation. Where is God when we hurt? We can get overly mechanistic and looking for the ways, you know, that because I suffer X, God's going to use it in Y. Right, I heard an interview with a pastor uh, whose, terrible story, a pastor whose father was shot in the church parking lot after he listened to him preach his first sermon in, in inner city Chicago. So he's in seminary. His dad comes up to town to listen to him preach a sermon. On the way out, gets mugged, shot. And in this interview with this pastor, the interviewer goes, now, have you seen God use that pain in your life? And it, it is a great answer. The pastor goes, 
I guess. <laughs> like, I, I, I guess I've been a little more able to help hurting people, but I'd rather have my dad back, right? I'd, 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 I'd rather I learn this lesson another way, and I got to keep my dad, right? We can get overly mathematic in our looking of, I suffer this so that I can help these people in this particular way. But the big picture, the big picture is that the point of your life whether in suffering or in happiness, whether in success or in failure, whether in strength or in weakness, is that you would experience God's grace and that you would reveal it. You would point your family and your friends and your neighbors to the one who is strong when we're weak, to the one who's merciful when we fail, to the one who's great even when we're ashamed and who covers our shame in the blood of the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would be exalted and glorified in all things, even if that means being exalted in our suffering, even if it means triumphing through our weakness, even if it means your beauty uh, shining forth out of the ugliness and brokenness of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith, that you would help us to live our lives in a way that doesn't merely look to pursue pleasure and avoid pain, but that you would help us to live our lives in such a way that seeks to enjoy and then to reveal your grace and your goodness to our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.